This is Radiance tape number JD79, a message by Jim Durkin, entitled, Qualities of Leaders. I'm going to be ministering on the subject of what a deacon is, because more deacons are being set aside in this body. We've set aside a number of deacons in the Los Angeles body, and uh, this is beginning to emerge now in the body generally, although the older churches, the established churches, have had deacons for years. But those deacons have not walked in the authority of their office. You see, the situation that exists in most churches is a deacon, an elder, a trustee. These are different names for, in most cases, the same function. We just give them different names. But normally these men are considered board members. And naturally, if you're a board member, you want to have a board meeting. And if you're having a board meeting, you feel you should do something, and normally that something is object to something. doesn't matter what it is, as long as you feel you're, you're doing something. You just go there and say, yes, yes, yes. You feel you didn't do anything. So you have to say, I feel as a deacon, or I feel as a trustee, or I feel as an elder in this organization that, see, and you, you feel you must do that. So many times, the great function of deacon, and believe me, it is a powerful function, just like the great function of elder and the great function of pastor, referring more to the local scene, local church, has never been allowed to really function. Those offices have not been understood, therefore they have not functioned. And because they have not functioned, the church has been weak, not able to accomplish its purpose. Pastors can never be pastors until they recognize what their work is. That they are a part of these five ministries which God has set aside, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. It's not the pastor who's supposed to be the minister. It's not the apostle who is supposed to be the minister, or the evangelist, or not they that are supposed to be the minister. They are the equippers of the saints so that the saints may minister. But if they don't understand that, they'll feel somehow, I am in the ministry. Well, I want to tell you that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in the ministry. Hallelujah. Because that's what it is. It is his body ministering to itself, that it may be built up in love, that the Lord's body may be fulfilled and completed. And it's the Lord's body, Christ in that body, ministering to a lost world the good news. Not one person here, a little... It'd be like a funny thing, you know. It's the whole body that ministers. And I mean, look at my body as I'm ministering to you. I'm not standing here. My hands say, well, I'm not in the ministry. And my feet, well, I'm not in the ministry either. Well, what is in the ministry? Well, just my mouth. See? Now, sometimes that's what a minister is. He is merely a mouthpiece. So, it's just in, in the ministry. So, I stand here and I look straight ahead and I don't look at you, no expression on my face. And I say want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary for your sins, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved, and so will all men who believe in him. That's the ministry. You say, wait a minute, brother. There's no expression. There's no life in what you're doing. Can't you? Well, certainly. You see, that if I'm ministering to you, if my body is involved in the function, every part of my body will be involved in the function. My face will express to you, my hands will express to you, the way I move forward or move sideways or the way that I stand and turn, every part of the body will be involved in the function of expressing this tremendous life that Christ has put in me. 
And the same thing with the life that Christ has put in the church. The church, the Bible says, is his body. And it's the whole body that must function in bringing this tremendous message. And so the world at one time sees a part of the body functioning here and a part of it here and all one body and reading one message. See, it'd be a funny thing if I'm saying to you with my eyes, this is a very serious situation. See, I'm, now here's my eyes, a very serious situation. While my mouth is going, <laughs> see, and my legs are going like this and they're doing something. You say, what is the matter with that guy? He's all apart. That's right. If the body is involved in the thing, if the head is really controlling the body, then my eyes, my mouth, my being, my hands, every part of me will express exactly the same thing, and each one will complement and add to the portion of the rest. So the person will say, he spoke that with his whole being. Now that's what God wants in his body. That his body on the earth, the church, will speak always one message. That when the world sees it, no matter where it sees an expression of the body, they see one life, one head, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We all speak the same things and we are of the same mind. That can never be unless the body of Christ is organized even as the human body is organized because one is a lesson for the other. We are not able readily to grasp spiritual truth must be revealed to us. And so many times God uses natural examples or physical examples he's placed in the world to demonstrate truth. And one of those he uses very powerfully is the body of Christ. Ye are the body of Christ and members in particular, and the Bible tells us Christ is the head. Now we have the head and we have the body. So we can learn from these lessons of the body. And he tells us that you all speak the same thing that you all be of the same mind, that you have one heart, one mind, one accord, one... That oneness is a very real thing. But unless the body is organized, so when the head gives the command, the whole body responds to that one command, then we say that person is disorganized. If it goes too far, we say he may be insane or he may be sick or something is terribly wrong, because when he wants to go forward, see the head says go forward, part of the body won't respond. It just kind of wants to do something else. No, it's God's purpose that the body is organized. And when it's organized, and the head says go forward, the whole being, the head turns and looks in the direction, the eyes focus upon the point, the body leans slightly forward, moving itself off balance, and the hands begin to swing to maintain that balance. The whole body moves toward that point that the head has commanded it to move toward. Now that's in a well-organized body. Now assuming that something has gone wrong with the body, the glands are not functioning right, so the energy levels are low, can't do what the head wants it to do. The head says move. The body says I'm too weak. I can't do that. We say something is wrong. Must be healed. Or the person says I want to, but somehow my feet won't work and I stumble over myself. Or I try to go there, but somehow my mind won't stay on it and I kind of wander off. I know that something is pushing me to do it, but I just can't stay with it. Something is wrong. So there must be an organizational system within the body which is functioning to make that body come together 
and function in love, building up itself, repairing itself, healing itself, defending itself, protecting itself, and carrying out that for which it was created by God. The body of Christ, the church, is the same thing exactly. It is a body. It does have a head. It has functioning parts. It has organization. It has through the head direction, but if something goes wrong with those organizing parts, those functioning parts which keep the whole body moving toward one theme, if something goes wrong with that, if those parts don't function, then the body becomes very disoriented and segmented, begins to break up into little tiny pieces, all of which are unconnected to the other. They all try to be connected to the life which is in the head but they're not connected to each other by a vital life which brings them together into one body. And then the world can look at us and say, see that? That's supposed to be the church. Let me tell you about them. They're all disconnected. They don't speak the same thing. They all say each other are not even right on, and they don't even believe the same things, and yet they say they all get their message from Jesus. Now, something must be wrong somewhere. And furthermore, they talk about love, but they don't love each other, and they talk about doing the work of God, but they don't do the work of God. See, they're just like us. And then the world says, can't compute that. It has no word for me. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Once in a while, we get a person saved here and there. Now, to the extent that we go back to God's pattern, not rushing into it blindly so that we come up just with a merely another type of organizational structure apart from God. But when we go back to and search out the Word of God and put those functions back where they belong and let every member of the body respond to those functions in an involuntary way. Involuntary. Do you know my lungs breathe without me thinking about it? I want you to understand that there's something inside of me that keeps giving commands to me and says, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. I can be unconscious. Someone could hit me in the head, and I could be completely unconscious, and yet though my mind is unconscious, I am not able to function in this physical world at all, yet some inner commanding, organizing force within me says, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. I can be knocked out, and yet my heart keeps saying, pump, 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 and blood keeps flowing through my being. My digestive processes go on without me having anything to do with it at all. It's a working force within me. My body is a self-regulating, self-governing force depending upon the commands which come to it from the head and those I'm not even aware of. There's something very deep in me, an intelligence which God has placed in me, the glands within me, the portions of me, the nerves that control me are a completely functioning thing and allow me then through the process of what the head sees to accomplish. See, all this part is functioning right. It's all together. Then the head is able to say to the body, which keeps right on functioning, see, it breathes, takes care of itself. If I'm cut, immediately blood is rushed to that place of a different kind. Fibrinogen, I think it's called or something, I'm not exactly sure, but it begins to fill up that area and close off that bleeding. Then the skin begins to manufacture new cells and close in that area so that it heals itself and all without me thinking about it. So that I am free to think about that which the body ought to be doing in this world. 
There's something that God wants done in this world. Now then, with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Timothy. More and more, I tell you, I feel the nature of our calling is to establish these things in ourselves, to find out God's working order of those things, and then to take our message. I'd like you to look at the first verse, first chapter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In other words, move in no other direction or say no other thing than that which the head is commanding. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man. Now, I'll stop there and read a little more later on. Now, we're going to move toward the third chapter, which will be the matter of the organization of the church. But I want you to understand that there are always pressures working on God's church to bring it back into a certain way of thinking which will divide the church into little warring segments or groupings. These warring segments or groupings are always the result of some men who cannot simply be content to receive God's order of things. Now, God has an order of things. I did not establish that order, and you did not establish it. The apostles themselves did not establish it, the early apostles. They had no part in establishing it except to minister to the church that which the Lord Jesus Christ had revealed to them was the truth. Now, there is a divine order for God's body in the earth. There is a divine body of teaching which ought to be taught through that body. In other words, the Lord wishes to teach something through the body. You are that body. If you are going to fulfill your mission, you are going to have to be on guard from falling into the traps which people have fallen into in every age and dispensation. Every time the church has fallen back into certain traps. Now, I believe God is going to sustain us in this particular generation because I think this is the end generation. We're coming to it. There are many reasons which I could give you for that, but suffice it to say that I believe we're in the final generation and we're preparing ourselves for that final great confrontation with evil. Now, Paul is telling this man, Timothy, he says, Timothy, I besought you to stay still at Ephesus and to set certain things in order which were wanting there. He said, these things are not good. He said, first off, and you'll find Paul talking about this in several other places. There were certain brothers, certain men, he called them. Maybe they were brothers, or at least they named the name of Christ. 
crept in, who would bring to the body of Christ certain questions about Scripture. They wouldn't necessarily question that the Scripture was true, but certain questions about Scripture which would get the mind of the body off of its work, the thing that Christ wanted to do in this world, and would get the body of Christ off of its work and thinking about something that had no relationship to what the Lord wanted to do in this life, in this world. Remember that Jesus did not die in any final sense at Calvary. He said, I have power to lay my life down and power to take it up again. No man takes my life from me, he said. He could have even then besought his father for legions of angels, and they would have come and delivered him from that. It was a voluntary thing, submitted wholly to the will of the Father that he did. When he died at the cross of Calvary, he went down into the heart of the earth, he led captivity captive, proclaimed the doom of those who were contrary to the principles and purposes of God, rose again on the third day, led a host of captives into heaven, ministered to the disciples for 40 days and 40 nights. And by the way, it's interesting, and we'll study some of this from time to time, how certain numbers do reappear in Scripture again and again. The number three appears over and over again. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Let us go three days in the wilderness and offer sacrifices to our God. You begin to see these things relating back and forth. There are too many times to be merely chance. Another thing is 40 days. Jesus fasted 40 days. Moses fasted 40 days. Elijah fasted 40 days. Children of God were 40 days in the wilderness and rebelled against God and spent 40 years in the wilderness. You began to see this again and again. Moses had three 40-year periods in his life, 40 years when he was driven in the wilderness, 40 years more when he came to do the work of delivering Israel, 40 years later he died at 120 years. You see this many times. The word 120, you find it quite often in Scripture. Moses died at 120 years when man rebelled. Before the flood, God said, yet his days, my spirit will not always remain in him, yet his days shall be yet 120 years. And the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people in the upper room received the Holy Spirit. At the dedication of the temple were 120 trumpeters, and they all made one sound. Very similar, isn't it? So forth and so on. God came into the temple, and no man could minister at all for a certain period of time. So you see these numbers occurring again and again. Now, God's body... The Lord Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, merely transferred the form of living that he did. On the earth, he lived in a body, limited in size by the human frame, limited in geography by the physical restraints of the earth, though the Lord at times demonstrated they really had no hold upon him in the final sense. He was able to walk upon water. He walked into a ship and immediately was at the place where he went, so time and space collapsed whenever he was in the operating of the Spirit. He walked through walls, demonstrated that, was lifted up by the Father into heaven, so they did not really have restraint upon him. But he changed his form of living, did not die in that sense, rose from the dead, and came to live in flesh, an earthly body. You are, the Bible says, the body of Christ and members in particular. And Christ, our Lord, Savior, is living in us and living through us. Now, there's something that Jesus wants to say in this work. 
and it's through his body that he's going to say it. He's not going to say it by angels thundering from heaven, though it reveals that in the book of Revelation, that there will be a time when that will take place, but that's a proclamation of doom. There's something that he wants to say in this life through his body. And just like our body, if we're not careful to practice the teachings of the Word of God, is subject to attack by disease, so likewise the body of Christ can become diseased. Now, I know that sounds strange, but I tell you it's so, and I'll show you how it becomes diseased. It becomes diseased like every part of a body becomes diseased. When somehow it is cut off from the very life that is in the body and gets isolated, either some wound takes place so the proper amount of blood is not able to get there, or a breaking takes place so it's not able to get the proper amount of life flow that it needs, then disease takes place. Now, it can also be diseased by germs getting into it in some way and attacking that part of the body. And if something isn't done to hurl those things back, next thing the body becomes sick and they can die. All right, now here's what Paul is telling Timothy. He said, Timothy, I left you there because he said there are some men who are in there getting the body to turn away from its work and getting the body to get interned upon itself and beginning to consider things they ought not to consider at all. Now, what are some of the things we ought not to consider at all? It's all right to look at them, because they're in the Bible. It's all right to say what about them, because they're in the Bible. But don't get hung up on these things. Don't start to make a big issue. Don't try to make a doctrinal point out of it. just destroys everything. What are some of these things? So you charge them that they teach no other doctrine than that simplicity which is in Christ. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. People get hung up on prophecy. You ought to study prophecy. Part of the Bible. But don't get hung up on it. You ought to study genealogies. Part of the Bible. But don't get hung up on it. And don't let people get you involved in questions like where did the devil come from? Or who made the devil? And did God make him the devil in the beginning, or did God make him something other? Those questions can be answered from Scripture, but they have absolutely no real value to the church, whatever. The Bible says the end of a commandment is charity out of a pure heart. That's the end of the commandment, that love functions in this body, you know? It's very little interest to me. I mean, if I want to study it for some particular reason, it's okay, I'm going to study it, but I'm not going to get hung up on it. How does a human grow? It's one cell, then it's two cells, then it's three, then it's four. You get in there studying about the genetic code and then about how the code works, and they're looking at it with a microscope trying to figure out how the genetic code works. And you know the only thing they come up in trying to figure out how the genetic code works? They're trying to figure a way in which they can grow babies in a test tube or babies in a big test tube, and they're trying to work so they get the one perfect man Super brain, super brawn, super health, super organs, and then when they get him, they want to tap that code so they can make them all alike. And out of this giant test tube factory will walk these ones just... Everyone alike. And I'll tell you, I don't know, but what? They're going to get close to doing it and may even turn a few of those things loose. And when they do... 
You're going to see a hell on this earth like no man has seen from the beginning of time to this time or ever again will be. It's not our business to tamper with life. God is the author of life. God is the author of the varieties that exist in human experience. And we leave those things to him and do not tamper with these operations of God. And so he told Timothy, he said, you charge them, they teach no other doctrine than those simple things which concern Jesus Christ. Now, I could go on here and tell about teaching about the law. I don't think I'll do it. I'd like you to turn with me now to the third chapter. Let's get to teaching what he does say you should teach about. Third chapter in the first verse, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. I hope every one of you see the value of the work of a bishop, which is really another word for an elder, an overseer. I hope in that sense every one of you desire the office. I hope none of you want it. Did you hear that? I hope you desire it. I hope none of you want it or none of you seek it. I hope you understand that not everyone can be an elder. It is not in the order of God that such should be so. It is in the order of God that there are many expressions in the body. Let's say I look at the work of a heart. I say that's desirable to be a heart in a body. See, I mean, that's a very important work. You see a pumping blood and you say, man, that is tremendously important. I want to be a heart. So somebody else says, wow, man, I see what you mean about being a heart. I think that's what I want to be too. And so here comes along another man and says, boy, that's for me. The heart is the only thing to be. Another guy comes along and he says, man, I tell you, I see what you brother talk about. It's the heart for me. And so finally the Lord says, okay, I'm going to put together a body out of you fellows that all want to be a heart now. So what kind of a body does he put together? Well, here's the arm made up of 14 hearts all pumping away down here. And here's the head made of a bunch of hearts pumping. And here's the feet. They're all pump, 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 pump. This would be ridiculous. Immediately would say, no, not just the heart is important, but what if it doesn't have any arteries through which it pumps blood? What if there are no capillaries? What if there are no lungs to take in oxygen to purify the blood that's pumped through the heart? What if there's no liver to purify the blood as it goes through the body? What if there's no... No, you need every part and every function. Now, it's very fine, very fine to desire the work of a bishop because you see it's a good thing. But don't strive to be that. Don't strive to be anything. Only strive to be a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Strive to do that. You may give yourself wholly over to that and let God fit you into your place in the body, wherever that is. It's of no consequence. But if a man is called to the office of an elder, if a man is called to the office of a bishop, then certain heavy responsibilities rest upon him. Certain heavy charges are given to him. Certain heavy requirements are required of him. Let's read some of these things. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desire the good work. A bishop then must be blameless. Blameless. The husband of one wife. Doesn't mean he must be married. But if he's married, it could not be a polygamous situation, and it must not be a bad marriage situation where some have presumptuously gone against the commands of God and done according as they pleased. It's a very serious thing that a man, when he's married, he makes sure that that marriage works. He gives himself to it. He gives himself to his wife. She gives herself to her husband, and they make that marriage function. 
A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. He must be a vigilant man. Now, can I say something to you? Whereas I think when a man comes to you, no matter how he comes to you, be grateful that he has come. Yet many have assumed that Christians should kind of just be kind of funny floating guys. And I don't mean to make fun up here at the pulpit, but sometimes it's the only way I can get the point off. Like if you're a Christian, you settle back on your spine. I tell you, the body expresses the way a guy is many times. And you kind of settle back on your spine, say like this, this is the first step. And then you kind of, see, and then you kind of get a beatific smile and then you, I'm a Christian. I don't bother nobody and I don't ever trouble anybody and I'm a nice guy. See, the Bible says about an elder, he must be vigilant. Now, I never saw anybody vigilant who stood, I'm vigilant. Man, if something went, zoom, 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 I'm vigilant. I'm just, an elder must be vigilant. And his body will tell you he's vigilant. He must be watching. He must be given to the oversight of the body. He must want to know what's going on. He must be involved with the work of God. He must be given to the body. Vigilant. It goes on to say he must be sober. Doesn't mean sour. Certainly can laugh. I don't want to push that too far. Sometimes we get into the kind of a thing of a giggle giggle. That isn't what it's talking about. It's talking about an elder must be sober. His mind is thinking about the work of God. Not only must he be observant of the people, not only must he know what's going on. I told our brother Ross Grove, when he goes to Los Angeles, I want him to make a practice of studying people. One day that brother will be an elder. Tell you for sure. He maintains himself in the faith and keeps moving in the way that he's being moved now. He'll be an elder among us. And he must learn to study people. He must learn to look at people. He must learn to know people. He must learn to let the Spirit teach him how to listen to the Spirit of people. So that he can give wise counsel. So easy to give counsel to people. Just, you know, somebody asks you a question, give them a stereotyped answer. That's not counsel. The counselor must speak the words of God to that individual. So we're talking about being sober so that he gives his mind to studying people. Not psychology. Pneumology. You know what that is? Pneuma means spirit. Study a man's spirit. Hear his spirit. So sometimes when you hear his words, he say, well, this is my problem, this is my problem, this is my problem. You listen to it and you say, yes, I hear your problem. Now let me deal with the problem. And you put your finger on the problem. A bishop must be sober. Of good behavior. That should need no explaining, but maybe it needs a little bit of explaining. It doesn't mean just nicey-nicey, goody-goody. It means good behavior from Christ's point of view. No one behaved better than our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet from the world's point of view, they didn't like some of the things he did. Sometimes he walked into a temple and said, I don't like what's going on here. Now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And he picked up a whip, 
and he starts swinging it around and the people are jumping and running out the door and he overturns the tables like this and lets out the birds and the goats and the whatever else they had in there, runs them all out and he said, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Well, the Bible speaks of Christ as the great bishop of our souls. He was zealous for his father's house. He was zealous for the people of God. He was a man who was of good behavior. Sometimes his disciples didn't understand him, and there were a group of children with their mothers, and the mothers wanted to bring the children so that they could be touched by Jesus. His disciples said, oh no, he's too busy now, he can't do a thing like that, let's haul these children off someplace else, don't bug him. Well, all right, I know in my case, there's a place where sometimes I can get bugged when I have a certain important work to do, and sometimes much presses in on me. But I'm going to tell you something, as an elder in that I am, Whatever else I have to do, that's the first office that God gave me. But I hope it never gets to the place where I'm so busy with the work of God that I don't have time to... Went back there today and met Kevin and Suzette, and she had the little baby all covered up with a blanket there, sound asleep. And I said, let me see. And she pulled it back, and I kind of kind of went, Oh, wow, you know. See, now I hope I never get so busy that I can't enjoy looking at a baby. Never get so busy that I can't take a baby up in my arms. So our behavior is misunderstood at times. But the bishop must be of good behavior. He must respond to the needs of every part of the body. Every part of the body. He must be of good behavior, given to hospitality. That's the one that we sometimes fall down on. And I have to watch myself. Last week I wasn't given to hospitality, I was given over to hospitality. There's a difference there, believe me. Any elder knows what I'm talking about. If you don't, I will try to arrange it so you learn about that particular doctrine. Because sometimes I tell you for sure that we get to the place where we say in our minds, I don't want any more people around me. Now, it is right that there must be times when we need to be alone to be with God. And so an elder must guard himself that he's not endlessly with people only, but he must be with the Lord if he's to be of any value to the people. I sometimes find that taking too much in the life of Daisy and myself. We're so much with people because of company that comes in and we rejoice in this company because we are given to hospitality. And yet there has to be a balance with how much we can take. And yet the danger is that we get to the place where we say, I want no people coming to my house anymore. I've got to have privacy. I've got to be alone. I've got to have time for. And what we're really saying is we don't really want to do the work of a bishop, which is to be given to hospitality. Strangers come to your door. How do you know but what you're entertaining angels unaware? People have a need. Say, man, get away from here, buddy. I'm busy. No. We must always find a way to meet the need of those people. You see what I'm saying about desiring the office of a bishop is a good thing. But anybody who wants it just doesn't know what the office is, or you wouldn't want it. You've got to make sure God puts you there. Only then can you be sustained in that particular office. It's too heavy otherwise. Say, given to hospitality. Apt to teach. Doesn't mean he's a teacher, just simply that he's apt to teach. He can take the things of sound doctrine and pass them on to others. Not given to wine. No striker. In other words, a man, not like this. See a good many people, 
just uh, they think that's, no, they don't understand. You just simply can't do that, that's all. Not greedy or filthy lucre, but patient. That means that he's gone through what? Did someone tell me? He's patient. means he's gone through what? Tribulation. And lots of it. See, tribulation works patience. And patience experience. And experience hope. And hope make it not a shame. That's why an elder can't be a novice. We'll get to that very shortly. Can't be a novice. He hasn't had enough of that pounding and beating. He hasn't been able to draw from that pounding and beating the proper example, so he's continually victorious over and said, well, that's a part of life. So what? The Lord will sustain me. I've been through this before. I've been beat, been kicked, I've been stepped on, I've failed, my plans have come to naught, I've been ridiculed, I've been abused, I've been humiliated, and when it all gets over, somehow, God still got me on my feet. That's what it means. Tribulation works. Patience, patience, experience, and not all those experiences are happy ones. Sometimes they're mighty miserable ones. Patience, experience, and experience, hope. Hallelujah. And hope make it not a shame. So that elder is able to say, okay, we're going through another crisis. The work is completely falling apart. The end of all things is at hand. So what, Jesus? You're in control and we're going to come through. Hallelujah. See, that's what an elder has to have. If suddenly when things start going bad, he says, Oh, Lord, the whole thing is falling apart. Now we've got to give up. Oh, God, help, help, help. He shouldn't be there as an elder. I'm going to tell you that. Some of the people will be doing that. They'll be, Oh, the whole thing is going to pieces. He'll say, No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Now just calm down. It's going to be okay. I've been through this a hundred times before, and we're going right on out the other side. And pretty soon it all goes out the other side, and people say, Praise God, that really did happen. Well, now they're getting some experience. And their experience is going to give them hope. See, and they're beginning to move into a place of greater usefulness for God. No, a heavy work rests upon an elder. Heavy work rests upon a bishop. Heavy work rests upon a person given oversight. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, I want to tell you, men, something that might be feeling that God is calling you to this office. God has placed in you, if you are married, God has placed in you a glorious opportunity in that you have a gift of a wife and children, if God has blessed you with children. And you have an opportunity here to learn the principles of rule. God, from the very beginning, has determined that man shall rule in his own home, that a woman shall be under that rule, not under his feet, but under the rule. And that the children, if they are to grow up to be strong children in the Lord, must also be under that rule and learn authority. But some of us get the idea that the authority that we need to exercise in our homes is authority like this. Listen, woman, see that muscle? Now, you don't obey me, you get this right in the kisser. See? Oh, okay, I'll do what you say. And then as soon as the man turns, I sit in a home one day. Not a Christian home, but I think it rather happens there. And a husband says to the wife, you do this, and I mean now, or words to that effect. And she says, all right, I will, I will. And that man says, man, I got authority in my home. No authority. He just is operating by brute force, and as soon as his wife can get rid of it, she flies the coop. Some other man comes along, or some situation happens, and zip, and, you know, the guy says, I don't know what happened to me. I thought I had authority. No. The authority that God is talking about 
is that authority which works by love. That he is able to so surround his wife with the security that love brings. He is able to so reach under her and bring out of her the wisdom that is in her and the creative aspects of her being. That she delights to find her place in the Lord, which she really knows intuitively and by the word, but she knows it even intuitively. That she's to be in that place beside her husband. And she wants to look up to him and allow him to be the head of that home, to really step out and do. He's made that way, she's made that way. If you have children, oh, how those children want to look up to their father and say, that's my daddy, that's my father, that's my... Very important that you have an opportunity to be able to train your family that your wife can say with joy in her heart, this is my husband. This is my head, whatever the word would be. Or for the children to say, that's my daddy. My daddy is... Because if you can impart that spirit to your children, if you can impart that spirit to your wife, where she delights to call you her head, where she likes to allow you to rule because that's the way it is in the order of things and she gives it to you because you're walking the way you ought to walk. Then believe me, if God should give into your hands 50 people or 500 or 50,000, it will all be the same. That blessed rule will extend over that family and they'll delight to say, that's my father in the Lord. That's my mother in the Lord. I'm a... They'll delight to do that because you've understood that. That's what it's talking about. Husband of one wife, for if he know not how to rule his own home, how shall he rule the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall in the condemnation of the devil. We're dealing with a minor case of that right now. Not here, but another place. Or a person being a novice, placed in a position of authority, is too heavy for him. The person who has been properly prepared by God to be in a place of authority, when a crisis comes and someone rushes in and says, Brother, there's a crisis. The whole thing is falling apart. What do we do? The first thing, if the elder has been properly trained by God and he's not a novice, the first thing he will do is say, Nothing. But you don't understand what's going on. Right. I don't. I don't. Don't tell me for a while. Let me talk to the Lord. And he gets his spirit calm. Now he says, come on. What is it? And immediately the person who's telling you of this terrible crisis says, oh, maybe it's not so bad after all. Well, you see, it's kind of like this. Uh-huh. I see. Well, amen. Well, the Lord's taken us through other things, and he'll take us through this. Now, it's just a matter. The Lord has something to teach us in this. I don't know what yet. And we're going to find God's answer. Now, let's get down and pray a while. See what God will tell us. And peace prevails. Now, a novice, what happens? Crisis. And he stands up immediately. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you to do this, you to do that, and you to do this, and you to do that, and you... All right, move, move, move. And then it gets even worse. And then he gets more panicky. And you move here, and you do this, and you do that. Say, wait a minute, brother, aren't you making a wrong... Don't tell me I'm making a wrong decision. I'm the elder in this house, and nobody can tell me. See, now he's lifted up with pride. 
he can't hear anything anymore. When an elder is properly prepared, he knows he can be wrong. And as a matter of fact, when an elder is properly prepared, he's had to apologize so many times for being wrong, he almost thinks maybe he is wrong anyhow. So he's saying, Lord, because I've been wrong so many times, you've got to get us out of this mess. Now, I'm going to go ahead and make a decision here that I feel is right. But, Lord, you've got to come on the scene and do whatever you're going to do. I don't know what to do, you know. Not a novice. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without. That's why I want us to pay our bills. That's why I want us to always maintain, when you tell a person you're going to do something to the best of your ability, do it. If you can't do it, call them up and tell them you couldn't do it. Just don't not call them up. Then they call back a day or two later and say, man, I suppose I have an appointment with a guy who didn't show up. I've done that on occasion. Brothers have chided me about it. They're right. Now I've got a secretary and I've got an office. And if she can ever catch up to me where I am, maybe we'll get this thing all straightened out. Hallelujah. No. So they're trying to get it so I have a good report of them that are without. You know, when I'm going to meet a guy at 6.30, she keeps calling me up and says, Jim, you remember tonight at 6.30 you have to meet so-and-so? I do remember. Then she calls me up an hour later. Jim, do you remember tonight at 6.30 you have to meet so-and-so? Yes, now I remember. Then at 6.30 she calls me up and says, do you remember at 6.30 you have to meet so-and-so? And say, boy, am I glad you called me because I forgot that. See? All right. Now, we need to help one another. We need to help one another. Must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall in a reproach in the snare of the devil. Likewise, and here we come to the point that I'm making this morning, likewise must the deacons be grave. He's classifying them right along with the elders. They're not elders, but they're right together with the elders. Because just like a pastor can't be a good pastor... And an apostle can't be a good apostle, and a prophet can't be a good prophet, and an evangelist can't be a good evangelist, and a teacher can't be a good teacher without the proper structure under him, so an elder can't be a good elder without the proper structure under him. Because an elder has a work to do. It has to do with the ministry of the Word. It has to do with spiritual counseling. It has to do with spiritual decision-making. It has to do with that particular part of the ministry which concerns the moral life of the people. And there are so many things that have to be done in a ministry that concern themselves with physical administration. How to meet the need of a person who is in trouble financially or other ways. What to do in this case, in that case, in another case. If we have buildings to maintain them so that the people from the outside look at them and say, well, now that's a good testimony those people maintain. I'm glad to see the ranch painted up like it is. Some people had a vision for that and it's done. We need to paint Deliverance Temple up, get it looking like it should on the outside and on the inside. Now, we've been trying to build toward that, have not been able to do it up to now, but now I believe is the time that we began doing that so the people in that community say, uh-huh, that looks pretty good then gradually fix up some of our other places, which people know is where the ministry operates and where the ministry lives. important that we do that. But if we take the elders and appoint them those tasks, if we take the elders and cause them to be responsible for all the finances of the ministry, and this is a growing ministry requiring thousands of dollars every month to be allocated to certain things, and hours are spent trying to determine how to meet the various needs of the various people, how to process those desires that are in people's hearts constantly coming in. 
I need this. We need more of this this week. Something has to be done here. There's a problem over here. An emergency arose here. What needs to be done? How about this over here? And those men are constantly sitting down and trying to determine where with a certain limited amount of money, it's like you almost have to meet an unlimited amount of demands and needs and desires and all legitimate things for the most part. God has always ordained it, ever so, that man would be faced with problems. Problems bigger than he was. Problems that he could not find answers to in any completed sense. You finish the problem of today, and another problem takes it a moment later. I was thinking of our blessed brothers that are working with the tree planting. They worked out a method whereby they had us all set up for work, and therefore a kind of a guaranteed flow of income way on for about six, eight, nine months or a year. All the contracts made, all everything, all lined out and everything, and there it all was, and they were feeling so good, and I was feeling good myself. Should have known better. Should have known better. Because God will always ordain crises. God will always ordain problems. It's in the crisis that we come to know God. It's in the problems that the growth experiences take place, not in the resting times. We need those resting times, to be sure. And so we kind of float along. We say, oh, isn't this beautiful? Not a problem on the horizon anywhere. Everywhere I call is good reports. You better enjoy the good reports while they're coming in. Something else is going to take place pretty quick. You can be sure of it because it's God's ordained method of growth. And then suddenly one of the companies for which we're working calls up and says, we got news for you. What's the news? You know that contract we had where you were going to work from here to here? Yes. You aren't going to work from here to here. We cancel it. Oh. How do you handle that? Well, I could have rushed in there myself. I don't know if I could have handled it, but I've had some experience doing that kind of thing. And I could have said, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I said, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that. I am going to let the brothers handle that crisis. They've got to learn to do that. And I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. Those brothers handled that crisis. And they grew thereby. Oh, how they grew. What a blessed thing to watch them. I was talking to my brother Fred, and I saw what he was doing. Man, he was doing this, do this, go here, go there, and just really giving some good directions. Our brother John, Jacqua, is the Lord's blessed timing. He probably could have handled it some way, I mean, because he knows these people and so forth and so on. But he and Debbie were on vacation. Isn't that the way God times it? He sends this person who can handle it real easy. He's on vacation. And then he says, all right, they're on vacation. Very good. Now, pow! See? Ah! See? That's God's way. He's growing up other brothers to take places of strength and courage. And these brothers handle it. Our brother Kim and Jim Wall and Larry Jameson and all the others that were involved in it, plus our elders and our deacons working together as a team. And they solved that crisis and that problem. Oh, what an exciting thing to see these things operate like they should. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, we're taking our deacons today when they're ordained and we're turning over because we're going to set our elders free so they can do their work and we're going to give the deacons this heavy responsibility so they can do their work because their work is over the physical administration of the work of God. And yet in the absolute sense, their work is completely spiritual. Don't ever get to think their work is carnal or their work is physical. Their work is totally spiritual in its nature. 
But they're over the finances, over the physical, over the administrative. And there's a heavy charge laid upon them. You deacons that are here and you deacons that are be ordained today, likewise must the deacons be grave. Now that doesn't mean sour. Again, it means sober. You must give yourself to your work. It's not a title. I'm a deacon. Wow, man, finally got there. Man, if somebody puts the title of a deacon on you, and that's all you want, I'd run, because somebody's going to put you to work in this ministry, I'll tell you for sure. No, the word deacon, what does it mean? You deacons, can you tell me what does deacon mean? Say it loud, it's not loud enough. What does deacon mean? Servant, slave, that's what it means. One who serves. Likewise must the servants, likewise must the church servants be sober, grave, not double-tongued. Yes, I'll do it. Forget all about it. Yes, I understand. What did he say? Deacon must never be double-tongued. A deacon must not be, as the ancient Indian person would say, tongue of a fork or forked tongue. Must not be that way. A deacon must simply be a straightforward man. I will do it. Don't have to worry about it. It'll be done. I'll take care of that. Don't have to worry about it. It'll be taken care of. I'll take that load off your hands. It's in good hands. It'll be done. Must not be double-tongued. Not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. I'm blessed by the deacons in this ministry that have demonstrated their capacity of not being greedy of filthy lucre. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Oh, how blessed it is to have a pure conscience. If I want something from you, I'm not worthy. If I've got an axe to grind, I ought not to be in a position of authority. If I'm greedy of filthy lucre, God help me, I'll never be able to fulfill my office. If a deacon has any of these things, if he holds the mystery of the faith in other than a pure conscience, if he's got something in his life that ought not to be there, he must confess it and get rid of it. He must be an example to the body, even as an elder must be, even as the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers must be, of those who are ready to confess to the body, those who are ready to get rid of their sin, those who are ready to clear themselves so they're void of offense toward God and man. Now, there's a reason why all this is true. I'm just going to finish the rest of it here and then tell you why. And let these also first be proved, same thing, not a novice. Let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives, and some versions say deaconesses. We think because it's not a ruling office but administrative, there could be deaconesses, and one day we'll probably have them. And likewise must the wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, Faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. And here's this marvelous promise. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. These deacons, men that have been raised up in this body and will be raised up in other bodies, are servants. 
They will do whatever has to be done. They're in a very real sense of the word, God's utility men in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual. They will do whatever has to be done in order to make the body function. So will an elder. So will any other office. But the deacons have a unique possibility because they're in a very close level with the whole body of the people. They're working in a physical level, which most of the people are working in a physical level, and they're leading them into a deeper spiritual experience. We are committing into their hands under oversight, but there for the most part, because it's always been a principle that the Lord has shown me, when you give a man a job, let him do it. Don't keep interfering with him. If you trust him to do it, let him do it. If he needs more guidance, give him the guidance, but tell him that when you put him in there, saying, I'm going to put you in the job, but you're going to need some guidance here. So I'm going to give you that guidance. Come to me whenever you're going to make a major decision. But when he's there, you've got to let him progressively make heavier and heavier decisions until he's able to make those decisions by himself. And he may do it different than you do it. You've got to let him do that too. You've got to let him have a certain amount of mistake-making capacity. He's got to make some mistakes. That's all right. That'll carry the body through. No mistake that a man makes if his heart is right it can't be corrected. It'll never be fatal to the body. He may waste $500 here or 300 here or 200 there. It's all right. That can be recovered again. But he's got to learn by experience how to do the work of God. Some of the brothers today, they're such astute workers with our finances. Boy, you should have seen them in the beginning, some of the, the blunders they made and the money that we spent just foolishly looking back on it from 25, 35, 45 years of experience. I'll say, why, if I'd have had that to do, I never would have done a thing like that. Well, the question you've got to ask yourself, what would you have done when you were 22? Not what will you do when you're 48. What will you do when you're 22? Oh, well, when I was 22, come to think of it, I did do a few things like that. See, right, see? So you have to let that person, you teach him certain principles, and you let him do it. And he makes a blunder, and it costs 200, 300, 500 dollars. One time it cost us a thousand dollars. We took on a remodeling job. That was a disaster, absolute disaster. We took on a job. I don't know how many dollars worth of stuff the person had to put into it. They paid for building materials. We went on with a remodeling job for month after month. We kept assigning brand new carpenters to it continually on this continuing remodeling job. And finally, in order to keep the person from suing us, we gave him a thousand dollars to let us out of the house. Well. That was a disaster. I never would have gotten that deal in the first place. I knew we weren't remodelers. It happened. Now, I could have come to the person and say, Brother, are you bumbling idiot? You've done it again. Oh, he didn't do it again. He's got to learn. I want to say that that person has never taken on a remodeling job since that time. <laughs> he learned it better than I ever could have thought it to him. And that $1,000, it was hard at the time. But it was nothing. A brother came along and loaned it to us, and I think it's since been paid back. I don't know if it all has or not. Maybe he forgave us some of it as a brother in the ministry. But we learned, all of us learned a lesson. It's a glorious lesson. And we learned how to work together and love together and give together and suffer together and rejoice together. You had to let him make mistakes. But the work will be turned over to him. They'll be assigned to find the houses, assigned to help us find our places in town because the work is growing in town. They'll be charged with the responsibility of fixing up the homes. They'll be charged with the responsibility of creating more opportunities for people to minister. Whatever the elders need. If those elders can take on the growing need of spiritual oversight of the entire body of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I have to have those elders free. They've got to be free to set me free. My work is growing in such a way that I need certain things lifted off my back. They could not do it up to now because they had certain burdens upon their back. They couldn't get free. Now deacons are being raised up to take those burdens off the elders so that they can take the burden off myself and the other ministries, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Got to make sure our brother Leroy is free. Got to make sure our brother Ron is free. Got to make sure certain other offices which are making their appearance, they're free to exercise those offices in power to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that this body may go do the work that God has called it to do. Wouldn't mind being a deacon at all. It's a precious and wonderful work. Let me tell you what the Bible says. They that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Amen.